Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. I'm Doug Stewart of the Libertarian Christian Institute. Today, I am joined by Nick Gosling, our executive director, and our special guest, Keith Giles, author of Jesus Untangled. Keith is a teacher, author, copywriter, activist, and servant of Jesus living in Orange County, California. Since 2006, he and his family have been part of a house church that gives away 100% of all offerings to the poor in their community. He can be found at keithgiles.com. Giles is spelled G-I-L-E-S. Keith, thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the uh, the podcast. I'm very excited. Yeah, we're really glad to have you on today as well. Your latest book, uh, which was published very recently, is Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. This is a book that when I saw saw it, uh, you I think you suggested it uh, to us via our website, and I looked at it and I thought, wow, that's a great title. It is kind of right up our alley as libertarians, the idea of crucifying politics for Jesus. What does that mean? Well, um, the what I'm trying to get at, and what I'm really talking to is out of my own experience, um, being someone who was raised as a conservative Republican my entire life, uh, and seeing not only myself, but in my family and my friends and my church members, um, you know, this entanglement of politics and recognizing that really, I think the solution to this problem, I do see it as a very large problem of, of American Christians who are more American than Christian, uh, that really what needs to happen is we do need to crucify our politics and our, just our, our desire to, um, operate through politics, and, and politics really rules a lot of American Christians' lives. I feel like we need to crucify our politics so that we really can, you know, pledge allegiance to the to the Lamb, to to seek first the kingdom of God, um, and recognize that Jesus has a plan to make the world a better place already, and it doesn't involve um, doing that through political means. Well, and it sounds like your book is very similar to the themes of Greg Boyd, who actually wrote the foreword to your book. You know, Greg Boyd wrote Myth of a Christian Nation, and yep. I met Greg one time at a conference, and he says he hears a lot that libertarians really love his book, Myth, Myth of a Christian Nation. And Nick and I were talking earlier uh, before the recording that we kind of think that this is one of those books that libertarians would also be attracted to, is your book, Jesus Untangled. For, for very similar reasons, that politics, or yeah. more specifically electoral politics, is not is not our salvation. It's not what will change the world or save the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's exactly why uh, I asked Greg <laughs> to uh, to write the forward, and I was extremely overjoyed and surprised that he responded yes. Uh, in fact, it was it was really um, kind of a perfect timing because. I knew he was in the middle of writing this massive book he's he's about to publish, and um, and I know him. Um, I've interviewed him a couple of times, so I just thought on a whim. I really just thought, could I send you the book and have you give me you know one of those endorsement quotes or something like that? And it turned out that I had 
I had sent it to him. Um, like he had just sent his book off to his publisher. And so he had this big empty space of time where he had nothing, you know, he wasn't working on the book. He was waiting for it to come back from, from the editor. And he said, yeah, great. Let's send me your book and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read it. He came back, I think within a, two days, had read the entire book and offered to write the forward. So I was really, really blown away. But I think you're right. I think that, I think my book and the myth of a Christian nation really can be seen as, companion books. Um, I think Greg does a great job of dispelling the notion that America is a Christian nation. And what I do is dispel the notion that Christians need to be involved in politics uh, on any level, really, to advance the kingdom. Earlier today, you uh, posted on Facebook that you were going to be on this podcast, and there were several people who were kind of like, whoa, libertarian Christian, what, is, what does that mean? Is that an oxymoron? And they had some questions about you know, what it means for a Christian to be a libertarian, and, and it was by far a pretty amicable discussion. Obviously, there's a lot of confusion out there because you know, everybody's going to identify in a certain way with, with a political group or belief system, and there's a lot of misinformation about what a libertarian believes. You said on the Facebook thread, and um, I think you said in the book as well, that you're, you're not a libertarian or a Republican or a Democrat. But one of the things that you know drew us to your book is that it really aligns seemingly uh, almost perfectly with the non-aggression principle. What is it exactly that you see is libertarian? And you know, maybe just describe why you're not in that camp. Yeah, well, so I'll say two things. One, um, the fact that I don't identify as a libertarian has more to do with the fact that I don't have any desire to align with any group that happens to have a political party, a platform, a campaign, a candidate for office, or anything to do with civil or national government. <laughs> so it has nothing to do, it has very little to do with, with my awareness of or agreement or disagreement with any policies that may be libertarian, because frankly, I'm very unaware of libertarianism uh, one way or the other. But even if, even as, as you're saying, um, a lot of the ideas in my book might, and I will say very accidentally, align with uh, libertarian ideas, um, it is accidental. Uh, but where those things align, that, that may, that's great. But um, I am really advocating for Christians to um, to really consider doing what I've done, which is to say, I really want nothing to do with the political process. I don't want to, I'm not seeking to, to make the world a better place by casting a vote uh, or by electing an official or by passing a law uh, or that kind of a thing. And so I'm what I'm advocating for in the book is for Christians for Christians, those who are following Christ, to put all of their eggs in Jesus' basket and say, I'm going to uh, follow him and uh, I'm going to believe that the best way to make the world a better place is to uh, follow Jesus, put his teachings into practice, and live out the teachings of the gospel and preach the gospel, because I believe that the gospel will transform me, first of all, and then it will uh, then have an effect, that same transformational effect on my family, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, my neighborhood, my community, and my world. Yeah, you know, Keith, that is a, a great uh, description, really, I think, of pretty much where the Libertarian Christian Institute actually comes from in our approach to 
to thinking about politics. I mean, we have people in our organization and who support our organization who are registered libertarian and some who are registered Republican and probably some who are registered Democrat and many who aren't registered to vote at all. Uh, the the way we we describe libertarianism really has nothing to do with the libertarian party per se. It's more about the philosophy of not using force, political or otherwise, to make people do what you think they should do. And right. to, to hearken back to uh, Boyd, he talks about uh, the kingdom of God being a power under rather than a power over kingdom. And so right. the, the whole idea is as, as Christians, I mean, we – we're libertarians, not not because we started with a political philosophy, but because we we think the non-aggression principle, this idea of you change the world through service and ministry and and love and the gospel rather than through coercion and violence, that flows mm-hmm. out of our faith, and that's that's essentially the the true baseline definition of of liber- libertarianism. So. You may remember, like when you and I first started emailing, I I said it's kind of my contention that that Greg and Scott McKnight and others who fall into that camp really are libertarian in that sense, even if they don't take the particular label. Uh, and that's right. why I think there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap with where we're coming from here. Right, and that's and that's awesome, and and everything you just said, I do agree with. And so on those levels, we are on the same page. I I totally agree that. Uh, we should have, as Greg Boyd describes it, a power under philosophy, not a power over philosophy. I do think that's one of the things that is misguided about um, the majority of evangelical Christianity in America is that it is seeking through politics to exert power over people. Uh, As I kind of talk about it in the book, um, it's frankly more about just making themselves a little more comfortable or creating a world in which they feel more comfortable because that world would, um, you know, look and feel like something that, that they're happier with. Uh, regardless of how it makes anyone else feel, they don't really care about how it makes anyone else feel as long as Christians feel comfortable in that world. And, and even, and they're okay with the fact that uh, by accomplishing that through passing laws, you've created sort of an illusion of living in a world that aligns with the way you think and the way you you want to live and behave, even though you know deep down those people, if the laws weren't in place, those people would absolutely not uh, agree with those things. But that's okay; they're all right with that. <laughs> they're they're willing to to uh, to put up with that. Well, and you know, I think that's one of the criticisms of libertarianism, especially from Christians, is that libertarians just want to have a world where they can have what they want and they don't really care what happens with everybody else and it's all about, you know, their benefit of being free to do what they want or free to ignore the poor or, you know, those sort of things. And so there's right. that sort of like surface level understanding of what it means to be a libertarian and when you really get down to it we really are in favor of protection for those who have been harmed or restitution for those who have been harmed and so forth you know we all are on our journeys and we come at you know whatever positions we we arrive at in different ways you mentioned just a moment ago that you were a Republican or you grew up Republican or in a family. And just tell us a little bit about your journey uh, toward where you where you are in this book. Yeah. So and I, and I, I want to make sure I do stress. Um, like I realized since the book has come out, I, I need to do this because the, if you don't understand where I'm coming from and you read the book, 
I think it's very easy to come across thinking, wow, this guy really doesn't like Republicans um, because because I'm pretty critical of, of a evangelical, you know, conservative mindset. But but I want to make sure people understand the reason why I talk so much about that is because that's my reality. That's where I was. I was raised in that. You know what I mean? That this is what I know very, very well. And so my reason for not critiquing uh, in minute detail uh, the failures of, let's say, where Christians might be entangled with Democrat or liberal uh, politics, the reason why I don't critique that as as much is not because I'm in favor of it, it's because I'm not as familiar with it, because I wasn't raised in that. Uh, but I am in no way in favor of one or the other. So anyway, I just want to say that as a disclaimer up front. But my yes, as my my experience goes, I was uh, raised, uh, grew up in Texas, in El Paso, Texas. I'm um, an only child. I was, um, uh, I was, you know, I was a member of the NRA. I was uh, listened to Rush Limbaugh from the minute I was able to vote. I rushed out and voted straight ticket Republican, and I did that for decades, <laughs> um, just across the board because you know Republican was the right way. Uh, to be and to think, and that was the most Christian way to be and to think. And I, I really was entangled. So I was completely entangled, my faith and my politics. And uh, it's one of these things where someone asked me, uh, you know, so Keith, when, what was the first moment you realized you, you saw your own entanglement? And I'm sad to say that I actually noticed my own entanglement when I really saw it in my parents. And it's one of those things like the, uh, you know, you notice the speck in your brother's eye before you notice the log in your own eye. Um, I was on the, having a phone conversation with my mom and dad. I had already moved to California where I live now. I was on the phone to my parents. They're still in, in El Paso, Texas. And my dad was telling me that a, uh, a family friend of ours uh, who a few weeks ago, he told me she became a Christian. I was very excited about that uh, because, you know, we've been praying for her for a long time and. She was a family friend. And so, you know, a few weeks later, I'm on the phone with my parents again. And I go, hey, how's how's our friend doing who, uh, you know, who's a brand new Christian? And got kind of quiet. And my my dad says, well, well, son, you know, I got bad news. I don't think she really even had a genuine conversion experience. I don't think she's really a Christian. And I said, oh, man, that's that's really disappointing. Well, how do you know what happened? And his response was that she had voted for John Kerry uh, in the in that previous election cycle. Wow. And it's, of course, the Christian thing, the test of faith would have been to vote for George W. Bush. And so it shocked me so much. I literally just thought, oh my gosh, why did he assume that she's she doesn't love Jesus because she voted that way? And that's when I suddenly realized, oh my gosh, yeah, this is this is the reality I was raised in. And then I began to notice in my own life things that were very similar, that I I had grown up thinking that as well in many ways. And so that was probably the first time that I felt like uh, I needed to pull back those layers and really examine those things. So one of the things I started doing in the book, uh, I talk about this, but I started doing in my conversations with people um, was to, to ask when I ever had conversations with family members or, or friends who, who were entangled this way, I would, I would just do this little, you know, what if with them, I would say, just imagine for a second, imagine that somebody in communist China or South Korea or somewhere in Africa, um, that they hear the gospel 
and they genuinely uh, fall in love with Jesus, re- repent of their sins, submit their life to Christ, and and you know they genuinely commit themselves to follow Jesus in every area of their life. Okay, now does that person automatically at the very same time become a Republican or a capitalist, you know, or or, or a conservative? Well, of course they don't. And I asked that question, first of all, just to get people to realize that it is very possible to be a sincere follower of Jesus and not uh, buy into any of the conservative Republican politics. Now, not only is that possible, the other thing we need to take a step and realize is that not only is it possible, that is what is going on around the world right now because the majority of our brothers and sisters in the church around the world are not American. And that means the majority of Christians on this planet are not Republicans, they're not conservatives, they're not Democrats, they're not libertarians, they're not capitalists. They come from a completely different ideology, but yet they all sincerely love Jesus and they are a part of our the family of God. And so we as Christians in America have lost sight of the fact that not only is it possible to genuinely follow Jesus apart from our politics, that it is being done around the world by the majority of Christians. Uh, and we need to wake up and realize that and to say, you know what, we, we, gotta, we have to divorce our faith from our politics if we sincerely want to uh, seek first the kingdom and allow Jesus you know, to rule and reign in our hearts and in our communities. Well, and even on a, a little bit broader, less specific level, you know, Jesus doesn't, you know, coming to Jesus doesn't mean you need to be a Republican or a capitalist right. or whatever. Immediately upon, you know, conversion, it, it doesn't automatically follow that you change political or adopt a particular set of political views. But even broader, it also doesn't mean that you're supposed to just simply love God and country. Right, right. Well, and here's the other thing about that mistake that evangelical Christians make. Uh, I'm going to pick on the conservatives again is that assumption, it's the automatic assumption that conservative American politics get all of their cues from Jesus, right? So like, oh, well, that's why I'm a Republican. That's why I hold to these Republican conservative policies, because they're the policies of Jesus, right? They have to be, right? Well, no, because no, if you actually sat down, and most of them would never do this, if you actually sat down with the Sermon on the Mount and compared it to Republican uh, agenda or, the, or our policies, you would you would realize, oh my gosh, there's actually nothing that Jesus advocated or stood for that I can find you know a correlation with in my political party. Um, so big surprise. That's another reason why it's possible and even necessary for you to pick one or the other because those two things are not going the same direction. I've I've tried to point this out to people as well, uh, you know, because a lot of times they want to say, well, why can't I do both? Why can't I follow Jesus and you know, be a good Christian, I mean, a good a good American, uh, a good, you know, be a nationalist or whatever. And it seems at face value, it seems like, well, why can't I? Why can't I be a good Christian, a sincere Christian, and be an American and a nationalist at the same time and involved in politics? Well, I would say it's possible if both uh, Jesus and political systems and parties and, 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 and American as a nation are going the same direction. If they're both going in the same direction, then of course you can do both because they're both headed the same way. But I think if we're really honest, we'll read the New Testament and see that Jesus showed up and said, 
hey, everybody, I see you're going this direction. That's the wrong direction. I have a different direction. I want to show you another way. And so Jesus is going north, and the nations of this world are going south. And so you can't go north and south at the same time. You have to choose one or the other. You're either going to walk in circles or you're going to get torn in half. Um, And I would also remind you, as I say in the book as well, that um, when you read Revelation, you realize that the enemies of Christ are the nations and the kings of this earth. Um, And it doesn't say the bad ones. It just says the nations of this earth and the kings of this earth, uh, because they are in opposition to his kingdom. He has a kingdom which has its own policies and its own agendas, and his kingdom is going, as I said, his kingdom is going north, and all the kingdoms of the world are going their own way, but they're not, they're not parallel. And so that's why I would say you can't do both. For many conservatives, it seems as though things like reading the Sermon on the Mount or just you know thinking of the Gospels in general, we have the Gospels there, and this is just the way that they think, I think is the Gospels are there to tell us what Jesus did, why Jesus came, and Jesus died for our sins, and things like the Sermon on the Mount are for us to enact personally in our church community. They're things for the church, and we just have to look to the rest of the Bible to figure out what exactly is there for us to you know, discern with respect to politics. And so there are all kinds of conclusions that are had because we don't prioritize the Gospels or the red letters if we want to be more specific with, you know, what Jesus said and what Jesus taught. So, you know, everybody kind of thinks that their hermeneutic of understanding the Scripture is Christocentric. You know, well, we're going to read the whole Scripture through the lens of Jesus. I mean, everybody from Calvinists to Arminians to open theists, they all claim that. And so you're making that claim here in this book as well, and I think you give an adequate defense of it. So could you explain a little bit, what is it about your hermeneutic? How is that Christ-centered? I think it's a, it's a much you know, more complicated question to say, how are those other people doing it or not doing it? So I, again, I can only speak to myself. So I'm, I'm, as best I can, I'm starting with Jesus. And I feel like if we do that, um, then we don't run into... We don't run into these tensions, or we shouldn't, or when we do, Jesus should win the tug of war. Um, so let's say I am going to follow, the, follow the, as, a, as an individual Christian, I am going to personally follow the Sermon on the Mount. And so as I am trying to follow that, and Jesus says to love my enemies, um, well, then he probably means I shouldn't kill them, um, or to turn the other cheek, right, or to bless those who curse me or do good to those who hate me and those kinds of things. So then I, I would say, then there would be a tension if my government tells me I need to take a weapon and go overseas and kill someone I've never met. Uh, I, I think that if you are sincerely going to follow Jesus, that you can't do that. And I, I give an example in the book about how nationalism twists that whole picture, that whole idea, right? There's that story that Philip Yancey told that um, it was one of his friends during World War II who was an American soldier, and their job was to get up in the morning, go out to the battlefield, and basically shoot dead anyone that was injured because they didn't have any way to uh, to take prisoners. And so that, that was his job, believe it or not. And he and a friend were walking around doing exactly that, and they came to this one German soldier sitting under a tree who wasn't wounded, 
but he was just too exhausted. He fought all night and he was just sitting under a tree and he was trying to catch his breath. And so um, the American soldier raises his gun to kill him. And the man in English, very clear English, says, please wait. Uh, let me pray first. And the guy says, oh, you speak English? He goes, yes, I do. And he says, you're a Christian. He goes, yes, I am. And he goes, I am too. So these two Christian brothers on either side of, of this war sit down under the tree together. They, one of them pulls out a Bible. They read some scriptures together. They even pray for each other's families. And they share, you know, pictures. Here's my mom. Here's my sister. Here's my girlfriend. Here's my wife. Here's my kid. Uh, and they have this really beautiful moment together under the tree. As, as brothers and sisters, not brothers and sisters, as brothers, they sit there and share, have this moment as brothers in Christ. And then the American stands up, pulls out his gun and says, I'll see you in heaven, brother, and blows the guy's brains out. Now, there's no possible way that Jesus would direct any Christian to do that. There's no way that following Jesus would ever lead you to do that. What leads you to do that is nationalism, that you as a Christian feel that your ultimate authority is your government or your political leader or your nation. And, and therefore, not only should you do that, but God is going to excuse you for that. It's okay. Um, and so it's very inconsistent, and it's, it's horrific um, that someone who says, I'm following Jesus, can do exactly that. Now, as horrible as that story is, I mean, anyone who's ever been a soldier in any military has done a similar thing. They have unknowingly, most likely anyway, uh, and of course, I, I'm not sure they've all done it, but potentially, if, if any, any soldier who is a Christian uh, is a soldier in the military— and goes to war and kills someone, he has potentially killed a brother in Christ uh, because he doesn't know if that person is a Christian or not. Um, and yet, you know, Jesus was the one who said to Paul, to Saul of Tarsus, that what you are doing to, to Christians hurts me physically, right? It's hard for, for me when you kick against the pricks, right? When you come against Christians and you persecute them, that, Jesus says, that hurts me as well. Um. And yet we justify this uh, in war, and we only justify it because of something called nationalism, which is, again, one of the reasons why I think it's very dangerous for Christians to say, I'm following Jesus, and then go and do something that goes directly against what Jesus has taught. So, Keith, you talk a little bit about the early Christians in your book, and that's one of my personal favorite subjects. I, I talk about that quite a bit because the way the early Christians viewed nationalism and their relationship to Rome was very, very different from the way contemporary Americans think about their relation to their government. And so, I mean, if, if we think about setting that story that you just told, which is a really harrowing story, into the context of like the, the first few centuries of the church, I just mm -hmm. can't imagine any scenario in which the early Christians would have gone for doing something like that. They yeah. were they saw themselves as radically outside of the ways of, of the world. And you know, one of the other key points there is that the early church really put heavy emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the whole gospel of Matthew and the the words and methods of Jesus. And yet we've we seem to have lost that over the centuries, I think in, in large part because of that Constantinian shift uh, yes. that had occurred. 
so tell us a little bit about uh, about your your take on the early Christians and how that can sort of inform the message the church needs to hear today when thinking about nationalism, empire, war, and things of that sort. Right. Well, I I want to agree with you, man, a hundred percent. Studying the early church is one of the most, it's at the same time, one of the most beautiful things and one of the most depressing things I've ever done. Uh, Because it's beautiful, because you hear the most Christ-like, you know, you read these guys, I read these first, second, third century uh, Christian thinkers and and writers, um, and, and across the board, it's a unanimous voice across those centuries. It's a unanimous voice saying we are following Jesus, and because we're following Jesus, we kill no one, we do not do violence, we do not participate in in the empire, um, and they took it to a much farther extreme even than I'm suggesting, um, and they and they saw what, what they they called a two kingdoms. They had a two kingdoms approach. There was the kingdom of God, and then that's what they were a part of. And then there was the kingdom of the world, of which Rome was uh, a part. And so they drew a line. And so uh, here's the other thing, though. I think that whenever I've had conversations with Christians where I will I'll quote early Christian fathers on these issues of how they did not involve themselves in the military or how they did not involve themselves in politics because they were just as outspoken about violence and the military as they were about politics. If someone was a magistrate, someone was a member of a political um, office, held political office, they had to quit. They had to renounce that or they were not allowed to share communion and they would not be baptized. Uh, And so whenever I share those kinds of quotes or share those kind of details with Christians today, um, they'll typically say, well, it's because Rome was so evil. Uh, But let me tell you, when I read the, the quotes of those early fathers, uh, and I would, by the way, encourage any Christian to do that. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to do. Uh, and when, when, I, when you read their reasoning, they give reasons why. They don't just say, oh, we don't do violence, or, or they don't just say Christians shouldn't be in the military, and they don't just say Christians shouldn't involve themselves with politics. They give reasons why they believe that. And you know, in every case, they give the reasons that they give are based on the words of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and the idea that they are members, uh, they are not of this world, and they are part of a, 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 the kingdom of God. That they are, you know, sojourners in this world looking for a better country, uh, whose city is, you know, walls are not built with human hands, but are by the Spirit of God, etc. Their appeal is always to Jesus and His kingdom and His authority, always. Uh, I don't think I've come across anything where, where they, the rationale has been because, you know, Rome was just so bad. As if, as if, if Rome had just been a little better, you know, about it, or more Christian, let's say, then they would have said, well, you know, okay, let's go ahead and join the military, or yeah, let's go ahead and get involved uh, with the political process. That that was something they would never have done. And as you pointed out, uh, that remained so until Constantine. And Constantine made some very significant shifts in redefining what it meant to be a Christian. Up to that point, up before Constantine, um, a Christian was someone who followed the teachings of Jesus, who lived a life that from the outside looking in 
or, you know, from you, you would look at someone and say, oh, that person must be a Christian. How, why do you say that? Well, because of the way they behave. The same way that you would look at someone and say, I bet that guy's a Jew. Why do you say that? Well, because, you know, on the Sabbath, uh, he doesn't do any work and he doesn't eat pork and all these other things, right? That makes him a Jew. Um, well, you would look at someone and say, that person's a Christian. Well, how do you know? Well, because they don't involve themselves in politics and they don't, they don't sign up for the military and they don't respond in violence and they care for the poor and, you know, all these other things. It was, it was, uh, it was a orthopraxy. When Constantine shows up, he's the one that shifts uh, being a Christian, the definition of being a Christian, to orthodoxy. Uh, it, it becomes now more about the things you believe. And so if you believe these 10 things, and you can check the box, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, good. Now that makes you a Christian, and you can do whatever you want. You can behave any way you like. In fact, uh, we would like for you to take this sword, join the Roman army, and help us go and defeat our enemies. And it worked, because within a generation, Christians under Constantine uh, were taking the sword and joining the military, and not only participating in military actions, they were killing other Christians. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was a major shift in Christianity during that time, and unfortunately, it's one that we've never really fully recovered from. Right. I think we're, we can look around, obviously, and still see that we're tremendously suffering from that shift uh, even today. I mean, really, any time you, you go out and you look at American Christians, and it's not just American Christians, but that's probably the most notable example, championing uh, the warfare state and yep. increased militarism or, and uh, capital punishment and all, the, all these various things. I mean, it's, it's really emanating out of that. Uh, one of the things I, I did want to bring up is Scott McKnight in his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, points out that all the, all the kind of things that you just said, which are completely on point about uh, an alternate kingdom and Christ is king and we're not of this world, but we're citizens of another kingdom. In a, those are, are very politically loaded terms, just not in the world's way of politics. We do have a, a king and we have a kingdom yes. and we are citizens. And so – when you read the New Testament, uh, Christ and the apostles are relentlessly making politically loaded uh, claims, but it's completely opposite and inverse of the world's sense of politics. It's not about the state. It's about God as king. And yes. in that sense, it's – yes, what, what we believe, our, our orthodoxy, if you will, is, is very important, right? Belief is centered on Christ, but – you can't separate correct belief from ethical action. If we really believe that Jesus is Lord and that we're citizens of his kingdom and that these are the ethics he requires of us, that should flow through in a regenerate heart to, to righteous action. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly. We all have our share of failures, no doubt, but it mm -hmm. should move us in that direction of living Christ-like. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, I love, actually, the fact that when you read the book of Acts, um, I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it's chapter six or seven or something like that. But there's a there's a wonderful phrase in the book of Acts where Paul is uh, Paul and the apostles are preaching the gospel and they cause this huge stir. And I think it's when they go to Jason's house and um, the people say the people get stirred up because they say these men are preaching. There's another king. 
besides Caesar, a king whose name is Jesus. And so they got it. Like they uh, they got the message. This was a subversive message. The, the Christians were saying, yes, there is another king. And this is why uh, Christians who were persecuted, I mean, and I talk about this in the book as well, you know, for the, the, those early centuries of the church when there was persecution going on, Christians were put to death because they they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. They refused. That's why they were skinned alive and burned alive and crucified upside down and beheaded and boiled alive and all these horrific things were done to them. And it was because they refused to say that, C that Caesar was Lord. So they went to their deaths proclaiming, we have no Lord but Caesar. I'm sorry, we have no Lord but Jesus. They went to their deaths proclaiming, we have no Lord but Jesus. Until Constantine comes along. And then they decide they have another king. Um, and it's okay if that king is is a Caesar. Um, and then they have that shift, right? That separation of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Um, and, and Constantine is successfully able to kind of create this weird thing where you can believe one thing but behave, you know, differently than that. So it, it's a it's a major shift, and it's very sad, but it is something that where we have ended up today. Well, I I, I have often kind of wavered between saying that in my mind that Jesus was not political and yet also thinking, well, yeah, no, Jesus really was political because there was all these loaded terms that, you know, Jesus is Lord as opposed to Caesar is not. And, right. you know, you read the book of Acts and you, you kind of have to wonder, I wondered this as a kid, why on earth, well, not only in the book of Acts, but like in the book of Luke, why did Herod see this baby Jesus as a threat? Why did telling people to go to heaven when they die become a threat to Rome? Like, I, I never really got that. And something was going on there that was actually a threat. So in the very broadest political sense, the message of Jesus is political because it has something to say about how we relate to one another in society. So in the sort of, you know, the original word of, you know, the origin of the word politics of polis being a body of citizens, how do we relate to one another is an important question. And I think the Bible has, and Jesus has plenty to say about that. It's interesting that what you're saying in the book and what I really love about it is that you're saying that basically politics is impotent in comparison with the gospel. Yes, absolutely. And there's a quote, I wish I could put my finger on it, but there's a quote. Uh, it's, not in my, it's not in my book, but I, I found it, unfortunately, after I wrote the book. Uh, but it's a quote by Dallas Willard. And um, I made a meme of it uh, and shared it on Facebook after I found it because I just thought it was so powerful. Uh, and it goes, I'm going to paraphrase it because I can't remember it verbatim, but essentially what Dallas Willard said was that politics was such an impotent, it was so impotent. Um, and, the, and the fact that it was, that politics was such an impotent force for changing a culture was proven by the fact that Jesus never called his followers to start governments or to become politically active. And so, like, uh, I just, I love that quote. It's like, yes, politics is not the best way to change the world. And that's, and, and the fact is Jesus didn't even bother with it. He just ignored it. It was like, no, I'm not like human politics, you know, earthly politics. It's something, it was part of his temptation in the wilderness, right? Satan offered him political power. Uh, that was one of the temptations that Jesus avoided. That, by the way, that's one of the things that the early Christians would point to when they said, this is why we 
won't be involved in earthly, man-made, worldly politics. They they looked at, you know, they pointed to that, that Jesus was tempted by Satan, and they said, you know what, if Jesus was tempted by Satan, then they saw uh, involvement with politics as a temptation of Satan for them also. There's definitely the allure to power that politics really kind of gets us yes. as Christians because we, we want to have that power. We have this urge to change the world, save the world, and, you know, oh, hey, look, there's this you, – you have this thing in the book that's called, called the shiny red button. And I think there's this yes. allure to, oh, if we just press that button, then maybe not everything will be better, but this one major thing – uh, would be better. Would you be able to briefly describe the the shiny red button? You also tell a story from over a hundred years ago as to how that ad, that issue was addressed, and that actually blew me away. I did not realize that at all. So I think our listeners would be happy to hear a little bit about that. Well, yeah. So the shiny red button. This is this was part of my personal process of um, getting untangled. And um, again, I'm 50 years old. Uh, I got, you know, I started voting when I was uh, old enough to vote, so as a as a teenager, basically. And um, so for a very long time, somebody, again, who was very entangled, I was I slowly over time started noticing uh, these patterns. And what I that's what I call the shiny red button. And here's the shiny red button as far as it, it applies to uh, evangelical, Republican, conservative uh, Christians. And um, I'm sure there, uh, I think there is a red, shiny red button for liberals as well. But for conservatives, the shiny red button is the Roe versus Wade, the abortion issue. And uh, here's how it works. So um, the Republican Party wants to fire up the voting base of Christians, which has become a very large voting bloc. And the way, so the best way to get them to vote for a candidate is to have that candidate very boldly and very passionately and it, possibly with tears in their eyes, uh, give a speech where they say that they believe abortion is murder, and if you vote for them, they're going to do everything in their power to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so Christians suddenly now have a fire lit under them. They say yes, that shiny red button goes off. They all rush to the polls. They push that shiny red button, and then they vote that candidate into office. He wins the election, and then that shiny red button goes back in the box and put under the table until the next election. And then that that uh, uh, politician does next to nothing to to over to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade or to address the abortion issue. Um, I talk about in the book about the fact again. This is just something I started doing the math in my own head, and I said, okay, if Republicans genuinely, they sincerely are serious, they really, really, really want to to stop abortion in America. Well, we had. In my lifetime, uh, two terms of Reagan, one term of George Bush, two terms of George W. Bush, um, and we've had a majority Republican Congress during that time period. And what did they do uh, to to stop abortion during that time period? Well, pretty much nothing. And I think the reason why is they they get it. They know what they're doing. They understand that it's ultimately this is about manipulation. Uh, it's one of these things where if they if they ever were to completely overturn Roe versus Wade and uh, abortion is now completely illegal in all 50 states, that would be the worst thing that could happen to, to the Republican Party because now they have no way 
the button doesn't work anymore. The shiny red button, the light doesn't come on. So there's no reason to get Christians excited to go and vote for them. So, they, so they're not motivated to fix that problem. Um, and so I, anyway, it took me a while to realize that, well, yeah, that's, that's what's happening. There really is no interest uh, in that. And so what, in doing some research for the book, I didn't know this either, by the way, until I started doing the research for the book, um, was about the fact that in the, I guess it was around the 1820, 1830, something like that, um, abortion was so bad in America uh, that actually, if you adjust per capita, it was as bad as it was right after Roe versus Wade uh, was was uh, was passed. You know, the law the abortion was made legal in America. Um, so in the 1800s, abortion was so bad they actually ran ads for abortion you know services in the newspaper. It was just free. It was like available. It was just everywhere, and um, and it was a it was a big big problem. And so Christians in America during that time period. Uh, over a over a sustained period of time, it didn't happen overnight. It wasn't a quick change, but over uh, a sustained period of time, they were able to not only slow down, but to actually significantly reverse the abortion uh, numbers in America. And they didn't do it by passing laws. They didn't do it by lobbying politicians. Here's how they did it. Here's how, and it was it was a Christian led movement. Here's how they did it. They went into the inner cities where poor single moms were, were pregnant with children, they were, they were the ones who were having the abortions. And the church came alongside them. They, gave, they sometimes gave, started homes for unwed mothers so that they would have a place to live and they would have their baby. They encouraged them to keep their baby. They would either take the baby and have, get, make sure the baby was adopted into, a, into a, a family that would care for it, or they would take care of the baby while the mom went and got education and so she could get a job so she could take care of the baby. They also at the same time did a campaign um, to get these guys who were knocking up these girls and not taking responsibility for the fact that they had fathered a child to get them to step up and be men and to marry these women and to take care of these children. And, and all of these things, if you think about it, what they were doing was really doing what Jesus would have called any and every Christian to do, which is to go to the outcasts, go to the poor, go go to the one, you know, go to these orphans, go to people who are, are hurting, surround them, love them, serve them, bless them, find a way to alleviate their suffering. And by doing that, the church was able to stop, or not to stop, but to significantly reverse the abortion trend in America. And I would say to you that if we, Christians in America today are serious about wanting to overturn abortion or to, to change the numbers on abortion and, and significantly reduce abortion uh, in America, that's the way we're going to do it. We are not going to do it by just, you know, if we could just find that perfect politician and, and vote him in, he'll make everything better. Well, no, he won't. Because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We have tried that, and we're still trying that, and we still believe, well, this politician's going to do it. That Oh, maybe the next politician's going to do it. I'm telling you, none of them are going to do it. We still have to do it. It's it's this is on our lap. This is in our ballpark. And the church, if we're serious about it, we have the power to change it. But it, the only way we're going to do it is if we then begin to walk out the teachings of Jesus and begin to love people the way He's called us to. Fantastic stuff there, Keith. Totally agree with that. And uh, that is something that that we 
uh, often repeat here at Libertarian Christian Institute is that, you know, you can say abortion is evil, which we believe it is, uh, but that doesn't mean that going to pass laws is the answer to uh, address that issue. The answer is the church needs to step up and, and be the church and love our neighbors and serve others. And that's when we can really start to make some headway in that and, and any other societal ailment. Uh, so right. as we, as we kind of start to move to a close here, the last issue that I think would, would really be of interest to our listeners has to do with economics. So we, we've been bashing on conservatives um, throughout most of the show, but yeah. uh, I would like to, to talk about the left a little bit. So it, it is common in uh, progressivism and Christian progressivism, I mean, to, to a call for more economic regulations and higher taxes and things of this sort. Um, fundamentally, what I think that, especially for, for Christians, I mean, I understand how non-Christian progressives get to those conclusions because they're coming from a completely different worldview. But for Christians who uh, are, are propounding that argument, what they're really asking for is just another form of state coercion, right? I mean, they're asking yes. for government to go hurt rich people to make them act the way we think they should act, uh, mm -hmm. which is it's just it's it's the other side of the exact same coin that we find on the on the conservative side. So you talk a lot about um, corporations in certain parts of of your book, and the examples you give I think are great examples of what we would call crony capitalism. It's this sort yeah. of merger of big business and big government to push people around and get what they want, right. um, and and that would. I mean, we would contend that's neither a, a Christian thing to do, nor it, it's certainly not a libertarian thing to do. So as Christians, I, I think we would all agree we have uh, an obligation to help the poor, love our neighbor, not be greedy, serve others. Uh, how do you see business and, and economics fitting into that, assuming it, it isn't being done with state coercion and force? It's being done voluntarily by serving the consumer. How would you uh, address that issue? Well, I, I think the way I look at it, and, and I apologize because I think <laughs> I think the answer I'm going to give to some people might just sound, uh, I, I don't want it to come across this way. I don't want it to sound like a cop-out. I want it to sound like, oh, he's not really addressing these hard issues. Uh, but, but this is where I come from uh, on this issue, or, or really any of these kinds of issues that that we might look at, whether it's, well, we have this economic um, problem, or we have this issue of corporations that have so completely uh, co-opted our government and our political system that the average voter, the average citizen really has no power, no voice anymore, really. Um, we have uh, political uh, figures that we have voted into office, but they don't care about us, and they're not representing us in any way. Um, uh, or you know, we look at all these kinds of injustices, whether it's social injustice or or economic injustice, political injustice. Uh, when I look at those things, if I if all I do is look at those things, I just see a mountain that is too big. I see a monster in a machine that I have absolutely no power to influence or change. Um, really, I, I have no power politically to change it. I don't think I have any power any other way uh, to change it. And so um, 
and I'll be honest, I, I remember there was this time when I was researching the book when I watched a lot of documentaries and I was reading a lot of books and studying a lot of these things, you know, not the theological stuff, but just the, the political side of it. And getting really depressed, I remember driving to work one day, just really feeling overwhelmed and just saying, you know, gosh, the, basically the world is so screwed up. Uh, what can I do? Like, what's the answer? And, and, in, and what I really felt like I really, what I felt Jesus say to me was, go and preach the gospel. And again, it seems so, so small and it seems so weak in comparison to corporations and governments and the Oval Office and, uh, you know, the power of the state and all that stuff. Really, the gospel is just this little thing. Uh, it's like a mustard seed, right? It's like this little tiny pinch of yeast. It just seems like nothing. Uh, how is that ever going to transform this world? How will that ever change uh, this this really hopeless situation I feel like uh, the world has gotten itself in? Well, I really think it is the only hope for our world. And I think that we as Christians just have to say, either we believe that or we don't. And if we really do believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about, and if we really do believe that the gospel has an explosive incredible, you know, power beyond, off the charts, uh, a power, an unimaginable power that the gospel can transform you and me into people who look and act and think like Jesus, and then transform people around us into people who look and act and think like Jesus. Uh, that's our only hope. That's the only plan Jesus gave us. And I think if we, if we go out and do that on a daily basis, our hope, our only hope is Jesus. Our only hope for this world, for this nation, for our community is Jesus and the gospel. And I believe that. And so I've decided to put all my eggs in that basket and to go all in with Jesus on that. And I'm not really going to try to change political, economic uh, systems or anything like that because I don't think, I don't think that direct approach is really going to accomplish anything. I agree absolutely, and I think that would be a very perfect place to end. Our guest is Keith Giles, author of Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics to Pledge Allegiance to the Lamb. Keith, we're really happy to have you on our podcast, and maybe uh, in a future episode, maybe after your next book, we can have you on again as a guest. Thanks for joining us today. Guys, thank you so much. It's been a blessing. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com as well as on Facebook, Twitter, at LCI Official, and of course on our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.